had a wonderful week. And if you didn't, it's okay, because our God is with us. Would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer, asking for the Spirit's illumination. Father, we come to you now asking for you to speak to our hearts yet again so that it would inflame with such joyful conviction that our minds would be persuaded of what is true that we instinctively know because we are made in your image. Father, I ask that whatever circumstances that we may find ourselves in or our family lives or within our work lives or just simply the happenstance of our everyday life that you would now minister to your people. And for those of us who are here investigating the Christian faith, I pray for them as well, that they would hear the voice of the good shepherd, the one who created them, and that they would follow in his uh, call upon their lives. Father, would you now encourage us and be with us, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, if you were here a few weeks ago, you might recall a story I shared in one of my sermons of an interaction that I had with a homeless woman in my previous church. You see, in the former church that I worked at, we did a lot of outreach, a lot of ministry to the homeless and poor community in the surrounding neighborhood where our church was situated, which meant every now and then we would have random people knocking on our office door asking for some assistance. Well, one day a lady showed up knocking on our door asking if we could help her financially. Now, the thing is, is that we had a policy at our church where we would not directly give any sort of monetary funds to individuals, but we were willing to purchase any items they needed, groceries, socks, toiletries, and so forth. And if they wanted any further financial help, they needed to come to one of our Sunday services so they could meet with one of our deacons who were trained to help people in their situation. Well, needless to say, when I shared our policy with this woman, she was not happy. In fact, she flew off the handle and started spitting out all these, these loud expletives and cursing me out in front of the whole staff. And right before she stormed out the door, she said these words, Pastor, I cannot eat your Bible. And then she just fled the scene. Now, you would imagine that in such a violent interaction that I would have been so unsettled and upset by it. But I assure you, I wasn't bothered at all. Why? Because I'm very familiar with this diatribe that she threw against me, and I'm willing to bet, Christian, you have also been the receiving end of something similar as well. Christian, do you ever remember this accusation thrown at you? Oh, you followers of Jesus, you Christians, you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. You're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. In case you're not familiar with that phrase, it's the accusation that says that we Christians and our churches are completely clueless or cold when it comes to the real struggles of people in their lives as they live in this world. Things like homelessness, things like addiction, things like monetary problems. Yeah, this is what this lady was accusing me of, and really she's not the only one. Because you and I are living in a culture today that is constantly accusing the Christian faith and hence the Christian God of being completely careless when it comes to the plight and struggles of man. But the question that I have before you is, is such an accusation true? We're finishing today the sermon series we started a few months, a few weeks ago, METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the whole point of this series is to look at the five crucial core ministries God calls every Christian to serve as a minister of God. And today we come to the last but certainly not least of these ministries, and that is our ministry to the broken, forsaken, and forgotten. The broken, forgotten, and forsaken, or what we sometimes refer to as the BFFs of the world. And as I hope to show you today, 
in spite of what the world may accuse us of, that we churches, we Christians could care less about the plight of the broken and the poor and the oppressed, our God tells us that is absolutely false because as our king, he commands his people to faithfully, persistently to serve the poor. And he gives us three specific reasons in our passage today, and they are as follows. Reason number one, because Jesus' messiahship is defined by serving the poor. Reason number two, because the gospel is displayed in serving the poor. And reason number three, because our stubborn hope is lived out in serving the poor. The three reasons Jesus gives as to why the church is to faithfully serve the poor is because it shows or displays or defines his messiahship. Number two, it displays the gospel. And number three, it reveals our stubborn hope as we serve the poor. Let's begin with the first reason. Because Jesus' messiahship is defined by serving the poor. Read again with me verse 16 and 17 of our passage where it reads as follows. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Okay, pause it right there, your attention, as I give you some crucial background information. Prior to these events that I just read to you, Jesus just finished a massive showdown against Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. In fact, I preached on this passage a few weeks ago. And why did Jesus go toe-to-toe against the great enemy of God for 40 days, 40 nights? to show that he was qualified and therefore he was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the anointed king of Israel. By the way, that is what the Messiah is. He is the king of God's people, meaning he simultaneously represents God and he represents the people of God. You know, in many ways, the Messiah is kind of akin to our U.S. president. You know how he represents both the people of the United States as well as the sovereign rule of the United States? Well, that's who the Messiah is kind of like. And when you understand that background, then you grasp why he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus doesn't go back home so he can reconnect with some long-lost friends or visit mom and his siblings. No, he has a specific reason in mind as to why he goes back to Nazareth because he has just been beginning his capacity as the messiah it's kind of like when a newly elected president gives his victory speech in his hometown you know how candidates after they find out they won the presidency they give a big victory speech usually in front of the house they grew up in or something right because they want to showcase what their presidency is going to be all about what their vision of the nation is well that's essentially what jesus is doing here he is showing up in his hometown to argue and to explain what his messiahship is going to focus on, what his priorities are going to be as the king of Israel, which begs the question, what is Jesus going to define his messianic role upon? Well, that's really the million-dollar question because what couldn't he not define his messiahship on? Because there are so many different things he could focus on. I mean, it's no coincidence that he is given the book of Isaiah, which, if you didn't know, is the largest Old Testament prophetic book, 66 chapters to be exact. And in those chapters, you will find every major doctrine, every major command, every major promise that is spoken of in the entire Bible can be found in the book of Isaiah, which means which means Jesus had endless options of what he could pick and choose and spotlight as what his messiahship is going to be defined as. And so we ask again, out of all the things that Jesus could focus on, what is his messiahship, what is his royal decree and focus going to be about? Read again verse 17 through 19. He unrolled the scroll, 
and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this is interesting. Out of all the things that Jesus could have talked about, the second coming, the resurrection, you know, um, judgment day, he instead chooses to focus on serving the poor, healing the sick, ministering to the oppressed, you know. In other words, serving the poor. That's what Jesus wants to define his messianic kingship on. Now, for those of us who grew up in certain church traditions, say, for example, you know, the Korean immigrant church, this is not something we're familiar with because our pastors in the past, our Sunday school teachers, did not mention this idea of how much the poor was an interest and concern for God. In fact, because it's so unfamiliar, you may take this as somewhat of a suspicious emphasis because you've never heard this before, and therefore you might not be convinced that this is the case. But if you're familiar with the scriptures, you would know that Jesus' focusing on the poor is consistent to how God's always postured himself towards the poor and the needy. Let me read to you a sampling of scriptures to prove it to you. For example, Psalm 113 says this, Who can be compared with the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? He stoops to look down on heaven and on earth, and he lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. He gives his childish the childless woman, a family, making her a happy mother. Psalm 146, he gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Luke 14, then Jesus turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Lord. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Galatians 2. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. All throughout the scriptures. In both the Old and New Testament, we see this consistency of God, of having compassion and concern for those who are less fortunate, those who are poor, those who are oppressed in our world by faithfully calling his people to serve the poor. You see? Now, I know for some of you, you're hearing this, and this can be somewhat unsettling because it gives the appearance that our God favors and maybe even loves a certain group of people, i.e. the poor, over and above other groups of people, the non-poor, which are many of us in this room. But consider this perspective from theologian Tim Chester when he writes, quote, it is sometimes said that God is biased to the poor or people speak of his preferential option for the poor, but such statements are open to misunderstanding. It is not that God is prejudiced in some way, still less that the poor are more deserving because of their poverty, Rather, because he is a God of justice, God opposes those who perpetuate injustice, and he sides with the victim of oppression. What's he saying? He's saying that God focuses on the poor, not because he favors the poor over above everyone else, but because he is a God who is for 
justice. And if there's anything that is undeniable about who the largest victims are of injustice, it is hands down the poor. Now, this is not to deny that there are some people who are poor today because of their own sins. But it is to affirm there are a lot more people who are poor because they have been sinned against. Do you guys know the largest group that make up the world's poor? Who is the largest demographic that make up the world's poor today? Give up? Children, 12 years and younger, make up the largest group of people who make up the world's poor. Guess who make up the second largest? Women are the second largest poor in the world today. Let me ask you. Do you think women and children make up the largest population of the world's poor because women and children are egregiously evil, so wicked and sinister? Or could it be women and children are the most poor in our world today because they're the easiest to exploit, easiest to victimize, easiest to oppress to where people can get away with it? As true as it may be that there are people in this world who are poor because of their own sins, it is also equally true that more people are poor because they have been sinned against. And because that is so, our God, our Jesus, when he defines what is my messianic role going to be about, what is my royal kingship going to be about, it is going to be about justice. And because that is so, that is one of the crucial reasons why he commands his people, the church, to serve the poor. But as we'll see in a moment, that's not the only reason. Because there are two other reasons why Jesus tells us that we are to serve the poor. The second of which leads me to my next point, because the gospel is displayed in serving the poor. Now, there is some pushback within the church today that are very resistant to the idea of the church serving the poor. Because according to these Christians, if we put too much of focus, too much emphasis of ministering to the poor, that will take our focus away from the church's primary mission, which is what? Preach the gospel. Yeah, according to these Christians, with all these churches emphasizing so much about ministering to the poor, that diminishes the one unique thing that only the church can do that no other organization can, which is sharing the good news so that people don't end up in the eternal fires of hell. But consider what Jesus would say in response in our passage in verses 18 to 19. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you guys hear how often Jesus used the word proclaim? Twice in verse 18, one in verse 19. In case you aren't aware, in the original Greek, the word proclaim is the same word to preach. And notice what comes right after the first instance Jesus uses the word proclaim or preach. Good news. In the original Greek, the same word for gospel. Now, this is interesting. As Jesus is speaking about how the church is to serve the poor, he always includes, he always incorporates, he always involves preaching the gospel. Why? Because as far as Jesus is concerned, any true church of his will always have both. When you have one, you must always have the other. In Jesus' mind, these two things are inseparable. Why? Listen to how theologian John Owen, a great Puritan theologian, once, once said. He said, quote, Churches and their members ought to think of caring for the poor as an eminent grace and excellent duty. For Christ is glorified and the gospel is honored when we care for the poor. Many people consider it unspiritual or something that should be spontaneous rather than organized. Maybe think it, many think it should not be central to the work of the church. But in fact, it is one of the priorities of Christian communities because it is the main way we show the gospel grace of love. 
What is he saying? He's saying any church that is worth its salt must preach the gospel as well as portray the gospel. To speak the good news and to show the good news. These two things must be together. Which begs the question, why does there seem to be a growing criticism, a growing concern for churches that serve the poor to where they're resistant to the idea? Well, Jesus gives us a big hint as a possible reason, which sadly is becoming a popular basis for people's resistance. Read what he says in verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says that one of the reasons why he came to be the king is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What in the world is that? What is this year he's referring to? Well, consider this explanation from Bible scholar Warren Wearsby. He says, this reference here is the year of Jubilee, described in Leviticus 25. Every 50th year was set apart as the year of Jubilee. The main purpose of this special year was the balancing of the economic system. Slaves were set free and returned to their families. Properties that were sold reverted to the original owners, and all debts were canceled. Let me clarify. In the days of the Old Testament, God made sure that his people, Israel, did not end up in a situation where the poor kept getting poorer and the richer kept getting richer. And how did God do this? By mandating the celebration of the year of Jubilee, where after every 50 years, all people who had to sell themselves into servitude, slaves, to pay off their debts would be set free and returned home and all their debts canceled and all the families that had to sell their ancestral lands so they could recover and survive economically, all of that would be given back to their families. No strings attached. Everything was canceled. Now here's the question. Why did God feel the need to command his people to celebrate this year of the Lord, this year of Jubilee? It's because his mind knew. God's wisdom knows the heart of man. He knows that even amongst his own people, there is a tendency to compartmentalize one's spiritual life to one's earthly life, which includes your earthly riches. In other words, he knows that in all of our hearts, there is a tendency to divorce our devotion to God and the disbursement of our earthly goods, something that God warns us against us constantly. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 6. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Notice Paul echoing the sentiments of Jesus. He says that we are to be rich in doing good. Why? Because it shows the hope that we have in God, which is the direct result of believing and receiving the gospel. What's the point? Here's the point. Churches serve the poor not to replace the preaching of the gospel, but to show the results of the preached gospel. Let me say that again. Churches serve the poor not to replace the preaching of the gospel, but to show the results of when the gospel is preached. When a person hears and receives and accepts the gospel message, they are changed, they are transformed in such a way that the cries of the poor and the laments of the oppressed become a concern for them and they're moved with compassion to give what they can, their time, their energy, their resources, so that they can serve the poor. Now I know many of us, maybe all of us in here are hearing this, and this can be somewhat overwhelming because let's be honest, the poor 
in this world, that's a daunting problem, isn't it? Right? There's so many poor people in this world today. I mean, billionaires have almost spent their entire fortune. Government agencies for decades have been trying to solve the problem of poverty, and it's still here. How in the world can our church, let alone any church, hope to make any meaningful impact when so many other people who are more resources than us not be able to make a dent? Well, you know, it's by asking such a series of questions that you set yourself up to the final reason Jesus gives us as to why we should serve the poor. And this leads me to my final point, because our stubborn hope is lived out in serving the poor. Read again, verse 18 down to 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? Did I hear you right, Jesus? Because you just sounded so confident, so assured, so certain that what you said is going to happen is going to happen. But here's the problem, Jesus. Over 2,000 years have passed since you uttered these words, and we look around the world, we still see a lot of poor, we see a lot of broken people today, we still see a lot of oppressed. What's going on, Jesus? Did you overpromise? Did you oversell yourself like a politician? Did you lie like a lot of politicians do today? The answer is, of course, not. So here's the follow-up. Why does it seem that everything that Jesus said would happen because he is the Messiah hasn't happened or doesn't look like it's going to happen at all? Well, you know, it's by asking those kinds of cynical questions that you mimic the original disciples in terms of how they felt between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Do you guys know what many of the disciples were feeling before they realized Jesus rose again from the dead? Yes, they felt fear. But a lot of them also felt stupid. Yeah. Here they are putting their hope in this man who calls himself the Messiah, right? And to where they're trusting in all the things that he promises, all the things that he is proclaiming. And now all of that hope seems to have died when he did, buried in Joseph's tomb. A lot of these disciples felt so duped, so foolish, so stupid for putting their trust and hope in this Messiah and the things that he was promising would happen. In fact, let me read to you some of the words that admit this very idea. Luke 24, these are some of Jesus' disciples. Jesus was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and our religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And then listen to what I said. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. We had hoped he was the Messiah? Do you hear the doubts? the disbelief, the sense of feeling so stupid for thinking that he was the one, right? And the stupidity they must think of those who are stubbornly hoping that Jesus is still the Messiah, even though he's dead. How do you come back from that, right? And yet little did they know that these same disciples were going to feel even more stupid when they realized that the person that they're saying these doubtful words to is none other than the resurrected Jesus himself, who has conquered all the enemies that his disciples thought defeated him. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he conquered the religious leaders. He conquered the Roman Empire. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. What's my point? My point is this. Try not to be stupid 
like these disciples were. The disciples, had they been faithful, would have stubbornly hoped in Jesus as the Messiah, even though it appeared that it would have been a pointless hope. Why? Because Jesus promised, I am going to come back. I am going to rise again. So that hope you have in me, it's not pointless. It's not in vain. Hope in me still. But they didn't because they thought it was stupid to do so. Very similar to how a lot of Christians may think. It's so stupid to serve the poor. It's still here. It's not changing. It's never going to change. What's the point? You see? But did you not realize that there is another resurrection, a future resurrection coming just like the first resurrection was coming for the first disciples? And yes, we can be tempted to think it's stupid, it's pointless to keep maintaining this hope, but we should stubbornly hope of this future reign where God will come and he will raise the living and the dead and he will judge, he will condemn, he will punish those who are responsible for the oppression and for the poor. And he will fix all that has been broken. He will restore all that was lost. And he will renew all that has been decayed and victimized. But he calls his people right now just like he called the disciples before he actually showed up in resurrected form. Stay hopeful. Stay stubbornly hopeful. And do you know how we display our stubborn hope? By doing what the world says is pointless. We continually, persistently, faithfully serve the poor because we know in the end it is not in vain. Consider these words from theologian Tim Chester. We cannot eradicate poverty within history. Many of our achievements are reversed and undone. But still, we are commanded to care for the poor. We help the poor not because we will move humanity one step closer to a poverty-free utopia. We help the poor because the jubilee community of Jesus, the church, witnesses to the coming reign of God. The church's social and economic relationship are the place on earth where God's future can be seen. We might see reform in our society. We might not. The important thing is for the church to witness to the coming liberation of God. We are called to be the jubilee community in which the poor are welcome, included, and strengthened. We are the place on earth where God's future can be seen, end quote. What is he saying? He's saying the church, we serve the poor not to eradicate poverty, not to make sure world hunger has ended. You know why? We can't do that. But there is someone who we put our hope in who can and who will. Because just as he came for that first resurrection, he's going to come again for the final resurrection where he will make all things right. And therefore, those of us who are anticipating that by stubbornly, hopefully serving the poor, we're not the ones who are going to end up looking foolish. We're going to be the ones who look like we knew exactly what we were doing because we persistently, stubbornly hoped in who our God is. He is the coming king. And he will bring justice and he will fulfill all that we have started now. We cannot transform this world, but our God promises that he will. And we show our hope and our faith in that by doing something that the world may say is stupid, but our God says is faithful. Here's my question. How do you want to appear when your Jesus finally shows up for his people, for this world? My hope and prayer is that when you think about serving the poor, it's not about trying to change it through your efforts, but it's a sampling to the world of the one who will bring them hope and who will restore all things. The question is, will you believe that and will you live it out? If you do, then I invite you, enjoy and join us, right? 
as we supplicate for the poor, as we share with the poor, as we serve the poor. Here's the opportunity now. Pastor Charles just talked about it. This situation in Ukraine and Syria, this is an opportunity. What did I say? I'm sorry, Turkey and Syria, right? This is an opportunity for us to give what we can and maybe then some more because our God is calling us to stubbornly hope in what he is going to do as surely as he did the first time when he rose again from the dead. Let's pray. Father, as we think about our responsibilities to the world, Lord, we can be so misguided to where we think that there's nothing for us to do or there is too much for us to do. But Father, we pray that you will give us the wisdom that is required to know the proper thing, which is to do our due diligence of serving, of being compassionate, and of being kind to the poor around us. We pray especially that we would prioritize those in this global world who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would make sure that the global church is being ministered to and that we are sharing the local church resources of our body at NCF so that our brothers and sisters all over the world would know that we care for them and that we love them. And Father, as we minister to them, we also pray that if you would grant us more opportunities and more resources, that we also would serve the world's poor as well. But Father, we pray that we would have this conviction from the get-go, that we would recognize that as we preach the gospel, we also portray it. As we speak the good news, we also show it by having a heart that is compassionate as yours to those who have been oppressed and those who have been broken by sin. Lord, give us that growing conviction as individuals and as a church family so that we can truly live out the full ministry you have called us to do. We pray that you will bless us now with that conviction in Jesus' name. Amen.